Thank you, Elizabeth. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John's first letter, chapter 3. It's good to be with you this morning in Pastor Sean's absence, so I get to be here on Sunday morning. It's exciting to preach up here my first Sunday morning with these new windows. I almost need to put my sunglasses on. It's beautiful to see the sunlight coming in. I'd like to start this morning with a confession that might come as a shock to some of you. Others will not be surprised at all. When it comes to the Christmas season, my natural inclination is to play the role of the Grinch. I know, it's shocking for some of you. Others are nodding their head in affirmation. How could someone who loves doctrine so much not love Christmas? Well, I can tell you I absolutely love celebrating the coming of our Lord, his taking on flesh, his incarnation, the doctrine of Christ, but I can't stand a lot of what has become of Christmas in our culture. Christmas is a, song, is a season of singing songs and decorations and trees and wreaths and ribbons and presents and, strangely enough, um, explicitly anti-Christian stores playing Christmas carols on their radio or otherwise irreligious and pagan stations playing Christmas-themed music, and they then get mad at you if you try and talk to them about Christ. They're very confused. It's a quite strange phenomenon, if you ask me. The season has been divorced from the reason. And as I've pondered this strange occurrence... As I've chewed on why otherwise anti-Christian entities would want to put on a pro-Christmas facade, I've concluded that they can do this because they leave out a central component of Christ's message. They leave out the why. The why of Christmas. They affirm that Christmas time is a time of good tidings, of great joy, of goodwill towards all men, and of silent nights, and of peace and glad tidings, but they never stop and ask why. Why is it a time of good news, of great joy, of silent nights, of peace? Why is it a time of great joy? Why do we even have Christmas at all? It's not merely for commerce. It's not merely for vaguely sentimental traditions and nostalgia and feelings. Why do we celebrate Christmas at all? Are all those things, all the trappings and the traditions, what we really look forward to most? Us Christians, we Christians. So to try and check our thinking about the why of Christmas, I want to look at some specific reasons that the Apostle John gives us for why Jesus came at all. We'll see specific reasons for his mission, which were not to create nostalgia and traditions. He came to produce an effect. He came to bring about some change. Indeed, he came to bring about a war, to wage war. Christmas can be the season of peace today because Christ has already come and waged war against Satan himself. So let's look at our text, 1 John chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 4. 
and go through verse 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that is Christ, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Holy Father, as we consider the why of Christmas, the reason why your son came and was born of a virgin and took on flesh, Lord, we pray that you would warm our hearts again to the love that motivated him and to the great victory that we have in Christ. Lord, help us to see this Christ even more clearly today and to love him all the more for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. To begin to answer the why of Christmas, I'd ask you to look with me at verse 5, and we'll see the mission of Christmas. The mission of Christmas. John tells us in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He says that Christ appeared, which sounds kind of strange in my translation. It's like Christ is the ghost of Christmas that showed up one day and was gone the next, something out of a Dickens tale, but that's not what John is driving at. Instead, I think the older translations get at the idea a little bit better when they say he was manifested. You could even say he was revealed. He was revealed to us. Something that was previously hidden has now been unveiled for all of see, some, for all to see. Something that was previously unclear has been made clear by Christ's coming. And what is it that was hidden? What is it that was unclear or was cloudy? Well, we... We could simply say that what was unclear was the promised plan of God. The redemptive plan of God was unclear to humanity. We can look back now in the Old Testament and we can see things more clearly in light of Christ's coming. But previously it was hard to see. People could read the Old Testament, they could hear the very promises of God, but it was not immediately clear how those promises would play out. How is God going to do all these things? After Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, God promised to send a son, another son of Eve that would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan. But who would that son be? Would that be Cain? Would that be Abel? God had promised to redeem for himself a people that would be a chosen nation, a nation of royal priests. But is that the Hebrews? Because they keep falling into sin. How could they be royal priests when they themselves are always falling into sin? God promised that he would make 
a people, a nation of Israel, and would adopt that nation as his very own son. But, but Israel kept following after the false gods and the pagan nations. Are they supposed to be the promised son of a holy God? God promised that he would sit a son of David on the throne forever, but David's sons were terrible sinners who ended up splitting the kingdom. Were one of those supposed to be on the throne forever? God promised that Israel would have a promised land flowing with milk and with honey, but the Israelites were eventually deposed from the land, spit out of the land by God himself and exiled into Babylon. How is this nation supposed to be God's people when they can't even keep the land that was given to them? And God promised the Israelites that he would make with them a new covenant and give them a new heart that would want to obey all of his laws. But what about the old covenant? What about all those laws and those promises and all of Israel's old sins? How are those going to be taken care of? God can't just wave his magic wand and absolve people of their sins. That would be unjust. That would be unbefitting of a holy God. There has to be atonement. There has to be justice. There has to be payment for these sins. We have all of these unanswered questions that lead us up through the Old Testament, through the end of Malachi. How is God going to keep all of his promises and keep all of his justice and holiness preserved? And all of those questions are answered in the unveiling, in the manifestation, in the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's what's loaded into this verse in 1 John chapter 3. Christ is revealed to be the promised son of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. He was the promised true royal priest of God that would never fall into sin. He was the faithful son that never fell into pagan idolatry. Christ is the promised one that would inherit and reign over a promised land, but not a place in Palestine, a new heavens and a new earth where there will be milk and honey flowing forever, where there would be a kingdom of peace for all of eternity. Christ was the one that through his faithfulness has merited the promised new hearts of the new covenant. And he's also the one that enabled God to keep his promises to Israel and retain his standard for justice and holiness because he was the one that died on the cross. You see, he was manifested as 1 John 3 tells us in order to take away sins. In order to take away sins. He takes them away. That's what's revealed on the cross. Christ was able to take away sins not merely by absolving them, not merely by saying, oh, I forgive you, that's it. He's able to take them away because he bore the punishment for our sins in our place. You see, Christmas is only good news because of Calvary. The incarnation, that is Christ taking on flesh, is only good news because Christ came and died in the flesh. Christ laying in the manger is only good news because he has also been laid there in the tomb as the one that took our sins away. The glad tidings of joy and of peace are only a reality because he experienced the terrible tidings of pain and punishment in our place. Do you understand what Christ has done for you on the cross? Have you experienced the great joy and peace that can come from trusting in him? He offers you this very day a chance to come to him and have your sins too taken away from you. He came to die in the place of sinners, to take the wrath in the place of his people, to die the sentence of death that his people had earned, 
and to instead give us a promise of life and of peace. If you have not yet come to Christ, then today is the day that you need to come to him. See the Christ revealed in Scripture. See all of the promises fulfilled. As we sang a minute ago, see the price of our redemption, the Father's plan unfolded. All of this is Christ. He is the one that has died in our place, and into him we can run into his loving arms. That is the best Christmas that we can receive, the best present we can receive this Christmas. The present of, present of having our sins taken from us. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why? Because Christ has been revealed. Christ has been manifested in order to take away sins. But it doesn't stop there. I want us to look back at 1 John 3, 5 and see the second reason for the why of Christmas. And that is the person of Christmas. The person of Christmas, the person of Christ. Why do we celebrate? John tells us, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In Christ there is no sin. It wasn't enough for Christ to be born, though he was. It wasn't enough for him to take on the fullness of human flesh, the fullness of a human nature, though he certainly did. It wasn't enough for him to be born of a virgin, to fulfill the prophecies of God, and to be fully human, though he certainly was. Christ had to be sinless if he was to be successful in his mission. He had to be the perfect man for that to be good news for us. You see, a sinful person can't take away sin, right? Darkness cannot cast out darkness, A tainted bath cannot cleanse. Perfection is needed in order for God's standard of holiness to be met. If he had merely died in the place of our sins, if he had merely taken the punishment for us, we would just be back in Adam's situation, having to earn for ourselves eternal life, having to keep God's law. But that's not what Christ has done for us. We can celebrate this Christmas with full hearts because Christ has gifted to his people his very own righteousness. You see, in him there is no sin. There is only righteousness. Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Christmas, born of a woman, he's fully man, born under the law. Born under the law, that means he had the law as his standard, as his benchmark. And he had not merely outward obedience to the law, he had true heart-level submission to all of God's commands. It is true that Jesus never killed anyone, but it's also true that he was never once sinfully angry in his heart, never once murdering people in his heart but acted in a way as to promote the life of everyone around him. It's true that he never stole from anyone, but it's also true that he was never once greedy or covetous in his heart. He was only overflowing with generosity. It's true that he never stole from anyone. I just said that. It's true that he never broke the Sabbath, but he perfectly rested his whole soul on God himself, laboring to do all that was pleasing in God's sight. It's true that he never worshipped pagan idols, but he also never once was doing anything other than fully trusting his heavenly Father with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. 
Theologians will say that Christ's full active obedience to the law, his full credit for perfect righteousness is imputed to us, is counted to us, is reckoned to us, is credited to our account when we come to faith in Christ, when we believe in Christ as the righteous son of the Father, when we repent of our sins and devote ourselves to following him as our Savior, then we have Christ's perfect righteousness counted to our account. We're adopted into the heavenly household of our heavenly Father, and we're seen no longer as sinful and dirty, no longer as polluted and defiled and impure. We're seen as robed in the very righteousness, the very perfection, the very full obedience of Christ himself. See, we are counted as pure rather than impure. We're counted as washed and beloved rather than dirty and cast out. That's the good news of Christmas. Why can we celebrate this Christmas? Not merely because Christ has taken away our sins, taken away our punishment, because Christ has positively earned for us an inheritance in the very household of God. He has earned for us the very eternal blessedness of eternal existence with him in paradise. He's earned for us what each of us was incapable of earning for ourselves. He's earned for us faithful obedience to the law. He's earned for us heaven Itself, And that is good news of great joy, that Christ has done what we could never do. He has fulfilled the law in our place and earned for us eternity with him in paradise. So thus far we have seen the mission of Christmas and the, the person of Christmas. But next let's look at the victory of Christmas. Look down at verse 8. 1 John 3 Verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So before we look at the victory of Christmas, it's worth us reflecting for a moment on a principle that John is applying in this verse, in verse 8. He tells us, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, which the Greek is telling us is an ongoing, continual practice of sinning. Whoever is resolute, who is consistent, who is devoted to sinning is of the devil. See, the principle he's applying here is simple. We understand it here and we see it in life. This, the principle is that we imitate our Father, we imitate our Father. You've seen this in your parenting, as terrifying as it is, your children act like you. And young people, be warned, you will in some way, shape, or form act like your parents. It's inevitable. I know it's terrifying, but it's true. It's true on earth, and it's true in the spiritual realm. You will act like your Father. All of us are born this way. We're born with Adam's sin counted to us, and we're born with his sinful nature within us. We're inclined, we're leaning towards evil from the very beginning, the Bible says. And if you're a parent, you've seen this too. None of us have to teach our children to be impatient and demanding. You don't have to teach them to be ungrateful, to be jealous to covet the toy that somebody else is playing with. 
There's a hundred sermon illustrations down in the nursery right now about stealing toys and being ungrateful. and All of those sins bubble up from within us from the very beginning, and we're all born that way because we're born, to use John's terms, we're born as sons of the devil. We're born imitating our spiritual father. Jesus spoke this way about the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44. They were, they were doing evil works, and Jesus reveals to them why that is. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for lying and acting like their father, and we, too, outside of Christ, stand condemned, condemned of acting like our father, the father of lies. John tells us that the devil has been this way from the beginning. It's his very nature to sin. He tricked and deceived Eve. He antagonized and tortured Job. Peter describes him as a roaring lion, prowling around seeking those whom he can devour. He tempted Jesus himself to sin in the desert three times. He was the motivating temptation for Judas to commit his act of betrayal against Jesus himself. And Satan is so associated with the sinful antagonism of the people of God that Paul can describe his thorn in the flesh as a messenger from Satan. 2 Corinthians 12. Satan's disposition is against God. His posture is anti-Christ, and therefore he is against anything made in his image, which is me and you. But lest we think that we're not anything like him, let's think for a minute some of the ways that we're tempted to act like the father of lies himself. We're inclined to defend ourselves, to throw others under the bus if necessary. We want to advance our own careers, our own image, our own station in life. We're tempted to be self-centered, self-concerned, self-interested in every area of our lives rather than being God-centered, God-concerned, God-interested in all things. And even when we think we're pretty good people during this season of goodwill towards all men. How many of us get annoyed when people take the last item in the store that we wanted to get on sale or people cut in front of us in line or the traffic is overflowing and we get impatient and frustrated during this season of goodwill towards all men? How many of us get disappointed and frustrated when we don't get the present we wanted? I remember doing that, especially as a child. I had my heart set on something, and you get something else, and your natural response is not to say, well, thank you so much, parents, for your hard work and how you've gone out to take the time to buy this present for me and spend your own money that you worked hard for to bless me with this gift that I didn't merit or earn. No, you get mad. You may not do that as a grown-up, but maybe you still feel that in your heart. Oh, I didn't want that. Vacuum cleaner, uh. <laughs> blender, uh. no, we're, we're ungrateful, we're, the word for it is we're ingrates, 
We can be discontent, ungrateful for the things that we've been given. And when we do that, we're acting as if our father is the devil. We're not acting like our heavenly father. But we have to remember the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, because of his faithful work in our place, has given us a new heavenly father. The father of holiness and of righteousness and of light. A father that we can and should imitate in all areas of our life. All believers have the very spirit of our heavenly father put within us, spurring us on. Driving us to walk in his statutes and his laws. We're not, we're not only called to imitate our Father, but our Father has given us his very spirit to help us walk in the imitation. It's like he's holding our hand, guiding us where we need to go. We no longer have to follow after the sinful father of lies, but we can follow after our heavenly Father, our Father of, of all truth. We no longer have to follow the accuser, but we can speak words of affirmation, words of encouragement. We no longer have to imitate our father of murder, but we can speak and act in ways that promote life itself among all those around us. Indeed, we're even commissioned to proclaim God's very message of life to a lost and dying world. We're commissioned to tell the good news of Christmas and the good news of Easter to all of those around us. And we become messengers of life as we imitate our heavenly father of life in his mission of bringing home those that are deceived by the very father of lies himself. Don't imitate the father of lies. Don't be like the devil who is always and ever an enemy of God himself. Instead, imitate your heavenly father. And in doing so, point back to him and bring honor and glory to him as the one who is ever worthy of our imitation. And why is it that we're able to do that? Well, verse 8 tells us, it says we, the reason we can imitate our heavenly father is the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Have the same language from verse 5. The Son of God appeared. He was made manifest. He was revealed to us. And why was he done? Why did he do this? To emphasize another aspect of Christ's mission. He came to wage war. See that little baby in a manger? We could say came with a sword. He came to wage war and to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is the enemy of Christmas because he is the enemy of God. And John tells us that he has been sinning from the beginning. It's in his very nature. He hates God and everything he does is motivated by that hatred. He's called the devil, the diabolos in Greek, the accuser. You see, he likes to take God's righteous law and spin it around as a weapon for his diabolical plots. He wants to use God's law to accuse of sin and thereby secure our condemnation. From the very beginning this was so. In, in the garden he took the word of God and he tricked and he deceived and he twisted God's word into a weapon. And when his trap was sprung he wants to make sure that the sentence of death the sentence for violating God's law is actually fulfilled. He wants to hold sinners captive. 
He's been doing that, using the fear of condemnation, the fear of death itself as a way to drive people away from God himself. But Christ has been revealed to destroy the works of the devil. He's destroyed the devil's use of the law because Christ himself has perfectly met the standard of the law. And he gives his very perfection to all of those who believe in him. You see, accusing us of being sinful, accusing us of falling below God's standard, of being dirty, rotten sinners is no longer effective for those that have been washed and redeemed by Christ himself. You see, we have been counted as those that have fulfilled the law. Satan can accuse you no more. If you have come to faith in Christ, he can't come to you with depressed thoughts with fiery darts and arrows. When you feel terrible, you can tell yourself, but I have been redeemed and counted as righteous. I have been counted as the one who has kept the law because of Christ. Furthermore, the fear of death itself has been removed because Christ has taken upon himself the death that we had earned. And he has earned for us eternal life in its place. Death has become merely the handmaid into glory. The ferryman that takes us across the river of death into the eternal city. The sting of death has been removed, to use a Pauline analogy. And although we grieve and we mourn death in this life, we do not have to grieve it as those who are without hope. But we know that death is not forever. And that our king has defeated it by destroying the works of the devil. Why can we celebrate this Christmas? Because Christ has defeated the works of the devil. He has freed us from the accusations of Satan, and he has freed us from our fear of condemnation and death. You see, Christmas is good news because it's followed by Easter. The manger is good news because the cross and the empty tomb. The manger, the incarnation is good news in light of the resurrection itself. Christ's coming is good news because he was successful in his mission to die in the place of his people and thereby destroy the works of the devil. Listen to some of the ways that the Bible describes the work of Christ. He has come to ransom his people, to buy them out of bondage. Those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He has canceled the record of death that was owed, and he has nailed it to the cross. He was our propitiation. That means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice in our place. He has freed us from God's judgment and his infinite displeasure. He has borne our sins in his body on the tree, and he has made a once and for all sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice of atonement, making us one with God and tearing down the veil of separation that was hung between us and God due to our sins. He has reconciled us to God through his work in our place. We're no longer estranged from our heavenly Father, isolated and alone. But we're united because of the work of Christ. And we're united to each other because of the work of Christ. He has redeemed us from the poverty of our hopeless and sinful situation. He has adopted us into his household, even though we had freely chosen to orphan ourselves through the sin. He has made us dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of marvelous light. All of these are why we can celebrate Christmas. See, we're, we're no longer without hope, but we have great hope in the work of our great Savior. 
We are able to celebrate good tidings and great joy because we have a message of reconciliation, a message of redemption. We have a message that through Christ, he has destroyed the works of the devil and he has taken away the power of sin. He was not only born, but he lived and he died in the place of sinners like me and like you. If you have tasted of that victory in Christ, if you have tasted of his liberating work, then rejoice in that this Christmas. Don't let your celebrations merely end on the birth of Christ, though that's certainly worthy of celebration. But let your celebration extend through the entirety of his mission and his victory, his victory over sin and of death and over the devil. Fill your hearts with gladness by reflecting even now upon the forgiveness that we receive because of his work of taking away our sins. And if you have not yet come to Christ, then I urge you this very day to submit yourself to him. Hear of his great work. See in scripture of his great love and of the sacrifice and of the faithfulness of our great Savior. Hear of his marvelous grace and have your heart warmed by his tender mercy towards sinners. For if you do not, then be warned this day, he will come again and he will finish his victory march. He has dealt the fatal blow to Satan and to sin, but he has not dealt the final blow. He is coming back. Our Christ will come again and this time it will not be to a manger and it will not be meek and lowly. He will come back, Scripture tells us, with power and with might, and he will come on a white horse bearing the very sword of judgment itself. And he will cast all those that do not believe in him into eternal judgment in hell. His offer of free grace will not last forever. So turn this very day from your sins and turn to Christ himself. He stands ready to receive any and all that would come to him. And for those of us that have come to him, we have this morning another reminder of his mission, that the manger of Christ was not the culmination of his earthly mission. You see, the cross and the tomb were the culmination of his life's work. And we see again at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ his body and his blood, but they are separated, reminding us again that his body and his blood were Broken, His blood was shed in our place. If you have come to Christ by faith, if you're walking in repentance, then we ask you to join us at the table of Christ this morning. If your life looks like the lives of the saints in Acts chapter 2, not perfect, but seeking to honor the word of Christ in Scripture, seeking to fellowship with believers, to break bread together, seeking to pray, then we invite you to come. But if you have not yet come to Christ by faith, if you are not walking in repentance, then we tell you to let the plates pass. We ask you to be be united to Christ and to his church first, to follow him in repentance and baptism. Then you can join us at the table. I'll pray for us, and then our table servants will come. Holy Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your Son who is the why of Christmas. He is the one that has come and defeated the power of sin and death, who has destroyed the works of the devil himself, who has taken away our sins. 
And he has done this at great cost, a cost which is pictured here at the table. Lord, refresh our souls again by this picture of Christ's body and blood slain for us. Feed us this day, Christ, through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.